You are listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the Bible one book at a time, and hopefully we will finish this quest we are on to cover the entire Old and New Testaments. We're a long way from it, though, and we're currently in the book of Philippians. I'm Drew Kaiser, and I've got Andrew Kingsley with me, and uh, we've been studying Philippians for the last several weeks, and we're ready for chapter 3 beginning in verse 17. We're going to go down through chapter 4, verse 9, and we're basing today's thoughts on Paul's famous command in chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And we're calling this episode Enduring Joy. So we're going to talk about how that joy comes in an enduring quality, a steadfast, steady Quality, not something that you know just comes and goes and with an ebb and a flow, but real deep, lasting, abiding joy. Uh, the secret to that are in these eight uh, points that we have in our reading today about enduring joy. And uh, like I said, it starts in chapter three, verse seventeen. And so uh, we're going to start looking at that where Paul begins with the first point. He says, number one. You, endure, you, you gain enduring joy through imitation, that is, imitation of Him and others who live like Him. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So evidently there were you know, people who were living like Paul, and he wasn't able to be among them. He was in prison. But uh, he said, follow my example, follow the examples of others who follow my example. Uh, Number two, he says, you gain this enduring joy through citizenship. And he reminds them, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, that is from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have this, uh, well, we'll talk about this more, Andrew, because it's a really interesting word translated citizenship. Some people translate it commonwealth. Um, We've got a lot to say about that. But uh, we live as people expecting Jesus' return, not as people whose home is here, but as people whose home is in heaven. Number three, you gain enduring joy through hope. Uh, That's kind of flows out of the citizenship, but he talks about the resurrection in chapter 3, verse 21, where he promises that the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then I I can put with that chapter 4, verse 3, if we can skip down a little bit, to that reference to the names in the book of life. That's more hope Mm -hmm. there. All those whose names are written in the book of life are those who have that citizenship in heaven and those who expect eternal life with, with God. And the book of life is another subject that we'll be returning to yeah, so don't worry, as we rush through this, we are coming back to some of these really profound ideas. But I want to get to number four as we continue this list of how to gain enduring joy. Uh, number four would be from chapter 4, verse 1, you gain it through standing firm. Because he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Mm-hmm. And Andrew, you were saying you know, before we started, that you think that means pretty much everything in chapter 3. Stand firm and all yeah. the things, at least the last half of chapter 3, all the things mm-hmm. that he had been talking about, maybe the whole first part of the book. Yeah. You know, 
stay constant in it. Uh, we were throwing around words for that, and uh, yeah. solidarity was the word that I came up with. We, but standing firm is Paul's phrase, and that's very important to joy. You can't be, you can't rejoice when you're constantly being, you know, back and forth, and you're unsure about life, and you're you're always kicking around. You know, what? Who am I? What? What am I really? What do I stand for? Yeah. People who are happy know what their life is all about. Mm-hmm. They stand firm in that. They're people of conviction. Oh yeah. And there's another word we could have used. Yeah. Um, but now, firmly in chapter four, let's go to number five. Fifth way to gain enduring joy is through partnership. Uh, he is calling names now for the first time in this book, unless I'm mistaken. We've not come to any... Well, no, we talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Yeah. But they are with him, and now we come to some names of some people that he is writing to that are there in the church at Philippi. And we talked about some of the original members of that church from the book of Acts, Lydia, um, and uh, the Philippian jailer and his household. But now we get some new names. Yeah. Euodia, Syntyche, these are Gentile names. And then there's... a. Uh, True companion is mentioned in verse 3, which could be loyal uh, Suzgus. Uh, Suzgus means true companion, uh, but um, it could be a proper name. Nobody's really sure if he's talking about somebody in particular. Sounds like he is. And uh, and then he mentions uh, Clement and uh, others, fellow workers. So the positive side of this is he's, He's um, talking about agreement, a laboring side by side in the gospel, and he's talking about his fellow workers. But he has to speak out to these two sisters and says, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. You know, there's yeah. nothing more depressing and discouraging than internal strife, you know, fighting in the church between brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's the fifth key to enduring joy is. It comes through partnership when we work side by side. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, number six, uh, reasonableness. You do it through reasonableness. And uh, verse five of chapter four says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Uh, this is a word that's translated all kinds of ways. And uh, we usually do words in the think section, but I can't even read this without... Um, giving yeah. a little explanation of the word, uh, it can mean so many things. And, you know, the final conclusion is we just don't have a good English word that is an equivalent to the Greek word translated reasonableness here in the ESV. Mm-hmm. Uh, the NIV has gentleness, as I said. The King James has moderation. But it can uh, mean a whole lot of different things like temperate, soft, gentle, modest, patient, mild, courteous. Um, you know, it has that sense of a person who doesn't fly off the handle, who is forbearing, patient with others, doesn't expect everybody to act perfectly, and knows full well that he isn't perfect. That's the idea here. And Paul says, don't just be that, but let it be known to others. Yeah. You know, be reasonable with each other. And, and you think about the wisdom behind that advice. I mean, how angry do we get when we're unreasonable? And how much does that destroy our peace of mind oh, yeah. when we're not reasonable? So 
Be moderate, be gentle, be reasonable with others. That's the sixth key. Number seven, enduring joy comes through peace. And that's where we have probably the best known verses of this passage. Chapter four, verses six and seven. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then finally, enduring joy comes through a good attitude. Verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. In other words, change your attitude by controlling your thoughts in a positive direction. You know, that's a lot of what joy is about as well. So those are eight points. And I know it's a lot of points. Preachers are not Mm -hmm. supposed to have more than three points. There's eight points on enduring joy. And I'll go back through them real quickly. Uh, You gain enduring joy through imitation, through citizenship, through hope through standing firm, through partnership, through reasonableness, through peace, and through a good attitude. Okay, so there are a great number of things talk about for apply or for think <laughs> we'll get i'm getting ahead of myself we'll don't talk about apply, apply yeah. until you first think yeah let's think about it first uh there's a lot of things we can think about first from this text uh there's a lot of great stuff here but i guess if we're going to go in just the order of the scriptures as we see them the first thing i want to talk about is in verse 20 where paul starts talking about our citizenship uh, this word citizenship is definitely something that the Philippians would have really taken to heart. Paul's really speaking their language here because if you remember uh, back from our first, I guess it was our first episode on Philippians, we talked about the history of that city and most of the people there were uh, retired Roman soldiers that had been sent, uh, that had been given land there in Philippi and had been sent back over there and most of the people in Philippi were Romans. Uh, Philippi was actually called a little version of Rome. And so they are thoroughly Roman. They are very proud of their Roman citizenship. Uh, Certainly, Romans at this time were uh, very proud to be Roman. Kind of like, you know, we're proud today to be Americans. And you got some folks that are, you know... um, Got a song about that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, they played at the Stone Mountain Laser Show all summer long. That's how I know that song. Um, but, you know, there's this uh, fierce sense of loyalty to Rome. Yeah, I would say Rome goes beyond today's patriotism in oh, yeah. America. Maybe yeah. around World War II, that kind of patriotism in America might come close mm-hmm. to the Roman pride. But non-Romans were just really looked down on. Yeah. They didn't have the same rights. They could live in the same city with these Philippians and be non-Romans and not have the same rights in the courts mm-hmm. and other other ways in business. Oh, yeah. So. 
Yeah, and there's something, the point that you actually brought up when we were in the break, uh, going back to chapter 1 and verse 27, Paul tells them to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I believe you said that same verb uh, for let your manner of life be, you know, the way that you live. Mm-hmm. That's the same word we have here for citizenship. Uh, right. Or it comes from One's the a same verb. word. Yeah. yeah. In chapter 1, verse 27, it's the verb. And over here in 320, it's the noun. But it's, they go together. It's He's playing on the same ideas in both those verses. Yeah. And I, to, you know, I really think what Paul is trying to show here with, because he says, you know, in verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And of course, before that, he's talking about these guys that are enemies of the cross of Christ. But then when he gets to verse 20, he starts off uh, with that conjunction there saying, but our citizenship is in heaven. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, caught up in that, and it's not right there directly, um, but caught up in that is, you know, our citizenship, our real citizenship is a lot better than this Roman citizenship that you guys enjoy. Yeah. Uh, any sort of citizenship of this world, because he's talking about those guys, he says, whose God is their belly in verse uh, 18. Or is it verse basically 19? basically means they are very much at home here on earth. Yes. You know, they feed their physical appetite, mm-hmm. and that's what they're all about. Yeah. Their citizenship is on earth. And that contrast is right, but our citizenship is in heaven, mm-hmm. um, and so we don't we don't as Christians we shouldn't look at this. You know, we sing the song, "This world is not my home," just passing through, and and then Peter says in First Peter two eleven that you're what is it strangers and aliens or there's uh, yeah. uh, sojourners sojourners yeah. exile sojourners and exiles is the ESV. So that you know that that's the idea that you know we're in the world, but not of the world. We're just pilgrims. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another song. Here we are, but straight yeah. pilgrims. Same idea. That's going to be stuck in my head all afternoon. <laughs> but then you get, right after verse 20, you get into verse 21, and a part of the citizenship is the resurrection. And uh, some of our listeners might not know this, but Drew has actually... Well, is that, well, I don't know if I can release this or not yet. Is this public knowledge? About about the book? Yeah, the upcoming... Uh, well, the I don't know if it's ever going to be done, but <laughs> okay. uh, I don't mind talking about it. I is mean, this our first? Is this your first press release for the book? This is the first public uh, reveal. All right. And so those of you who are listening in 2025 to this, because the <laughs> podcast can be listened at any time... Uh, go go pick up my book if the world is still here. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know why you brought that up, but uh, I'm working on a book on Christian hope, which involves the resurrection. Of course, this verse comes up in the book, chapter 3, verse 21. Um, and, and I think you're right. It's connected to this idea, hey, we're working for heaven. We're members of heaven. Even And before we get to the resurrection, I like the, the tense... Of verse 20, he doesn't say, our citizenship will be in heaven. Mm-hmm. But our citizenship is, present tense, in heaven. So yeah. it's like, you know, I'm I'm really a traveler here. Mm-hmm. A straying pilgrim. But uh, the resurrection in uh, verse 21 does come up. And, wow, uh, so much is said in so few verses. Jesus Christ, 
will transform our lowly body. The phrase lowly body refers to all the disease and problems and temporal nature of of this current physical body form that we're in. To be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we're going to be transformed. And I guess, first of all, you know, you want to point out that this is going to be a glorious body. Mm-hmm. Meaning, it's not going to die. It's going to be immortal. It's going to be imperishable, to use Paul's terminology in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not yeah. going to fade the way this body fades. It's not going to have the problems that this body has. But even more interesting to me is that he says that these new bodies will be like Jesus' body. And I think it's interesting to me because I've skipped over that so much in my life and I'm now thinking more and more about that because that's a real big clue about what the resurrection body is going to be like. And I think there's a lot of comfort in that. And, and I believe what it is saying is that our resurrection body is going to be like that body of Jesus's that came out of the tomb the third day after his death, the body that he presented himself to others in and uh, ascended into heaven in. And people will say, well, now wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, uh, that body was Jesus's body. Exactly. You know, Mm-hmm. You know, but it was di- it was different in a lot of ways from the body that he had before his death. Um, you know, it wasn't it was um, it could change appearance. You know, the disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him, and then they did recognize him. Uh, Mary Magdalene didn't recognize him, and then she recognized him. And you know, there's a debate over whether that was natural or supernatural, but I yeah. just, you know, how could Mary Magdalene not recognize Jesus if there was not some kind of a supernatural event going something, on there? Yeah, and something keeping him from recognizing. Yeah. Somebody has pointed out, well, his burial clothes were in the tomb, and uh, he was, he had on some gardener's clothes, so she didn't quite get him. But if I saw you wearing, like, you know, work clothes, I'd recognize you. Yeah. I mean, you could put on a police officer's outfit, and I'd know who you are. Yeah. You know, you could, I don't know why you'd do that, but, <laughs> you know, you could you could dress up in all kinds of I'm ways, detective, and I would recognize you, and and Mary was very close to Jesus, and, and these disciples, I mean, that, you know, of course they thought he was dead and all that, but I think that's a sign of a different kind of body as well as, you know, up in the upper room, the disciples are worshiping on the Sunday of his resurrection in John chapter 20, and he just appears in their midst. Yeah. The doors, I think John even says the doors were locked. Mm-hmm. And John has given us a clue there. He didn't come through the door. He, And then when he was eating with the disciples at Emmaus, you remember how he left? Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. I was just about to say, he just, he's gone. Yeah. He says, and then he wasn't there anymore. It's right. Just, it's like... So that body was very different yeah. from the body that he had before. The body that he had before his death was like the body that we have now. Mm-hmm. Now that those are the ways that it's different, but also think about this. It had the appearance of, of Jesus. You know, John is in the boat with Peter and they're fishing in John 21 and John leans over to Peter and says, "It is the Lord." He recognized him. He still looked like Jesus and Thomas was even able to feel the scars in his hands. 
You know, yeah. So he even had those distinguishing characteristics. Um, people could touch him. You know, I've heard people say, you know, point out that he told Mary, don't cling to me. And they're saying that's because, you know, people can touch him. But that that's not what he was saying. He was he was kind of saying, I've, I've got things to do. I haven't quite gotten done. There's a lot to do. There's no time for us to be, um, you know, clinging to each other and, and spending all this time here yeah. at the tomb. Um, so... You know, these bodies are going to be different, but they're still going to be us. There's some kind of continuity between the physical body now and the resurrected body. Yeah. And there has to be. I mean, it's only logical, because if not, then resurrection would mean nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's no continuity, then it's like one person died and was buried, and a completely different person came in and took his place. If this yeah. if this next sorry about that if this next body is not going to be anything like that um, that's your you know, reason. That's the way it's going to be. Yeah, it's the first released your book. <laughs> it's the first time that I've done that. I always turn my ringer off, but um, you know, resurrection would mean nothing if there wasn't some kind of continuity. Yeah, if it's not me that's going to be resurrected. Yeah, I think that's a great point because if it's you know if you don't have some degree of your Consciousness, I guess, is the only word I can think mm-hmm. to describe it. You know, if you've got, if there's no shred of you now left, then you don't even know. You know, whatever that new being is has no clue what it what it left behind. You know, mm-hmm. so I think, yeah, in some ways we're brand new, but it's not like we're, you know, a totally different. Uh, I'm trying to be careful about what person, I'm saying I think here. you can use the word person. Yeah. It's not like we're trading in our current, um, you know, our current uh, personality, memories, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff for something, you know, just starting to uh, slate clean just like we have, you know, we are a brand new, we lose everything we had. You know, I don't think we... So it's not reincarnation. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. There's a big, big difference between reincarnation, which says you, uh, you know, you're one person, and then your karma determines what kind of person you're going to be in the next life. And of course, Hindus claim some of them claim they have memories of the previous life, but they're they're different persons. Mm-hmm. And the resurrection is you, this person. Is is going to be resurrected? Um, before we leave this idea of being like Jesus, let me just brace up what we've been saying with First John three two. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So we don't know everything about it, but we know that we will be like Him. And I, and I take that to mean we will be like he is right now. Not that when he comes back, he's going to change, and we're going to change at the same time. But we're going to be like that body that ascended into heaven, and the angel said the same way that he ascends, he will come back and return. Yeah, I want to ask you, I probably should have given you a heads up before I just spring this on you right now. I think it's more fun if you surprise me. <laughs> How do you think this relates to... Matthew 17, where Jesus goes up on the mountain. He's got mm-hmm. Peter and James and John with him. 
And then he's up there and he ends up talking with Moses and Elijah while he's up there. You know, it's you know, and that's the yeah. transfiguration and his body really changes. Do you think that's like a glimpse into maybe what was coming or I do. Okay. I mean I, I can't be sure, but the term in Philippians three twenty one is glorious. And I think what the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration was glory. Mm. They saw him in his glory. So I I think so. I think that's what that was all about. But I can't be too sure that you know that's the body that was coming out of the tomb. But yeah, yeah, I I, I thought about bringing that up too. Yeah. This this by the way leads to another thing we were going to think about, and that's the Book of Life. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, let's talk about the Book of Life and what it is. Uh, Paul is trying to get these people to agree with each other, and this is the first negative thing we've come to, except for the rivals that he's yeah. not addressing, but the negative thing in the people that he's addressing in the letter, mm-hmm. there seems to be a little division in the church of Philippi, especially between these two sisters, Euodia and Syntyche, and he says... Uh, you know, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Uh, the book of life is mentioned throughout the Old and New Testaments in so many different contexts. The first one, I think, is in Exodus chapter 32 where Moses is interceding on behalf of the Israelites after they shaped the they made the golden calf and gave it credit for leading them out of Egypt and they're worshiping it. It comes out off the mountain, breaks stone tablets, and then he's yeah. you know the Lord says, "Get out of the way, so I can blot them out, and I'll make a whole new nation from you." And Moses steps in and intercedes for them, and he says, "Don't, don't uh, do away with them, and if you if you do, blot my name out of your book that you have written." So he's talking about himself in that book of life, and he knows his name is there. But I don't know how that's a bargain for the Lord or negotiation, but I think Moses is kind of expressing the same type of feelings that you have with Paul in Romans 9 and 10, where he says, you know, if I, if I could, I would be accursed for the sake of my brethren. And yeah. Moses is saying, you know, take me and give them another chance. But that's not the way the Lord works. He's... Gracious, and it's not like you know trading a soul for another soul. Yeah. Um, another case where the book of life is mentioned is in Luke chapter ten, verse twenty, when the disciples come back from the limited commission, mm-hmm. and they're rejoicing that they were able to cast out demons. And Jesus says, "Don't rejoice that you're able to cast out demons. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I think it's just yeah. written in heaven." And then the most memorable examples in Revelation 20 at the Judgment Day where books are opened, and the term books is in the plural as if there's more than one book, but it only says the book of life. It only names the book of life as one of those books, and it says that all those whose names were not written in the book of life were cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So you have, and, and there are many, many other references to the Book of Life, and uh, you were talking about Roman citizenship. I read, and you correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I've read 
that along with that citizenship, there was a record in Philippi and in Rome of your citizenship. There mm-hmm. was a book, uh, an enrollment kind of thing, and, and, you know, like at the courthouse or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Paul, again, is playing on their culture, using their culture to get a real point across here about what a wonderful thing it is and how they should be partners together and to tie that into our outline on enduring joy. I want to talk about continuity. I know I'm doing all the talking here. Sorry about that. But oh, no. It's... This, this is just something I've been studying a lot lately. Mm-hmm. We talked about the continuity you know, of the resurrection body, and that's us. Well, think about that in terms of the book of life. You know, he says, these people, Euodia, Syntyche, their names, their names are in the book of life. Those people, those very people. And then when Moses said, you know, blot my name out of the book that you've written, he wasn't talking about like future Moses or, you know, Moses 2.0 or something like that. He was talking about himself. And so, you know, people want to know, will we recognize each other in heaven? Will we know each other? Yes. You know, we are going to be in heaven. Us, actual, the actual people that are living here are the ones who are going to be in heaven, are the ones whose names are written in the book of life. So I, you get the continuity in that concept as well as in the concept of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's, I guess there's too much stuff really in here to bring out and to be able to explain fully, I guess, at least to our satisfaction. But this idea of the resurrection, you know, has got a, so many things to think about that really you start thinking about it almost, you know, kind of puts a, a pit in your stomach a little bit because you don't really, you know, we can't really fully understand it all. Mm-hmm. You know, for a lot of us, you know, that kind of drives us nuts. Um, yeah, you know, because you can't, like, you can't really know uh, what it's going to feel like until you're there. You know, right. you can't really know what it, what it's going to be completely until you experience it. You know, it's something that, uh, you know, it's um, something that we take on faith. It's something that we look forward to, and that we have a hope of. Of one day experiencing it, you know, all the questions we have of how exactly is this going to work, what's it going to be like, what's it going to feel like, uh, you but know, you know, we, just, we don't know. I think sometimes Christians are guilty of trying to understand too much, mm-hmm. because when we start talking about heaven, resurrection, and the nature of God, that's when we start getting these questions and, and some frustration about, um, you know, how God hasn't revealed all this to us. And, and it comes from, I don't think people used to be this way, but the world we live in now, science claims to be able to understand everything, and what it doesn't understand now, it's going to figure out later on. Yeah. That's, what, that's the attitude that we have is, you know, and we look at our bodies as machines instead of life forms. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of horrible, unethical things done in the name of science and medicine these days experimentation, uh, talk about, you know, harvesting organs from fetuses and using stem cells, embryonic stem cells. And, um, you know, I don't want to get into an ethical debate about, you know, medicine right now, but um, because it gets us a little off the subject. But when, when we're talking about the resurrection and being able to understand it, 
You get questions mm-hmm. like, uh, well, what if a cannibal eats a Christian? Like, mm-hmm. what <laughs> is is the can? How is resurrection going to work? Or you know, more commonly, what about somebody who was uh, cremated? Questions yeah, of yeah, cremation ashes. come up, and um, lost at sea and dismemberment, all these things that people just get really carried away with. And I think it's wrong to try to understand the process. And I was telling you that this morning I was reading this um, essay by Wendell Berry, and he quotes from King Lear, where um, one of the characters in King Lear says, Thy life's a miracle, speak yet again. And he's talking about how we try, you know, when we understand life, we give up on life. That that's the basic premise of the essay, mm-hmm. and life is a miracle. In other words, it's a mystery, and it's not. You know, we're not machines; we're life forms, and the resurrection is not something man can do. It's something that only God can do, and God is not man. God is God. So no, you don't understand the Trinity, because. The Trinity is God. No, you don't understand how we were created. Because we're human. And God did that. And that's okay. In fact, it's best for us. Because as long as we believe in life as a miracle, life as a mystery, the way Barry puts it, then we don't give up on it. Um, We start to give up on it and call ourselves machines and things whenever we pretend that we can understand it or have it all figured out. The thing that sticks out the most to me for application here is what Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 17. This is something that Paul says a lot in his letters. He says it several times. And it's, to me, probably the most, one of the most impressive things for somebody to be able to say. He says in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For Paul to be able to tell people to imitate him, uh, that's a pretty... I guess a a really impressive thing to be able to do because what he's saying, he's not being arrogant in saying, you know, well, imitate me, follow me. For Paul to say imitate me is to say imitate Christ. You know, this is something in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, he says, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. And so Paul is talking about when you get here, you know, that kind of statement has already been made by Paul. Paul already recognizes himself as trying to live a life that really shows Christ. And so what he's calling for the Philippians to do here is imitate Christ as he imitates Christ. And you can see him saying that uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. There's a little more clarification. He says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And then again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 6, he says to the Thessalonians, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is, you know, he's 
I guess for me, the whole you know point of the Christian life is we wear the name of Christ. We are supposed to be imitating Christ. And we all ought to be able to make that recommendation to people. Mm-hmm. But how many of us would dare say, imitate me as I am imitating Christ? Yeah. I mean, we, we wouldn't... I, I don't know anybody who would say that. We'd all say, imitate Jesus Christ. Don't mm-hmm. imitate me. Yeah. But he had, you know, led such an exemplary life from the point of his conversion on. He made mistakes. But, you know, he, he was able to say that because mm-hmm. Jesus really was Lord of his life. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's almost this idea of, you know, what in the context of what he's talking about is kind of everybody, you know, have the same attitude I have. You know, live like, live like I live. Uh, Paul, we've already seen from the letter to the Philippians, Paul's great attitude. You know, his attitude in suffering, um, his attitude in trials. And in chapter 2, he's calling for them to to be of the same mind, you know, to have the same mindset, really to have the same attitude. And that's the attitude that Paul believes that he has. You know, he wants them to be unified in mind. He wants them to be humble, like Christ was humble, uh, he wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ in chapter 1 and verse 27. These are all things that Paul is trying to do, is really a, to be an example. And he encouraged Timothy to be an example in 1 Timothy four 12, I'm sure is a very familiar passage uh, to most everybody familiar with the New Testament. Uh, he tells Timothy to set an example to the believers uh, in word, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity uh, is what he asked him to do. And so, you know, you really think about what it means to be an imitator of Christ and to imitate Christ in your words, in your conduct, which is just, you know, the the way you live. It's, mm-hmm. it's everything. You know, your words are wrapped up in your conduct. It's different from following a set of rules. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so, there there are laws in the New Testament, and we need to know them and follow them. But if you're just following laws, there's so many decisions that aren't covered by those. Yeah. So many reactions, responses that aren't covered by those. And, you know, it's, it's kind of cliche now. Not kind of. It really is because of the little armbands. But mm-hmm. the question, what would Jesus do, answers everything. Because we know his life. We know the example so it's better to think of yourself not just following laws, although you do that, but following you know the footsteps of Jesus, imitating, yeah, and and imitating Paul because you know what's great is after G- Jesus you know had three years of life that that we saw him in, and then we see his servants like Paul, we get to see them live their lives, which is how Jesus would have lived if he had been there. Yeah. So you have more than just one example to look at and ask, you know, how should I live in my Christian life? And here we see Paul, you know, for example, he's in prison as he's writing this. Well, how do how do I act if I'm treated unfairly? Well, there's very few people that I know who have been put in prison through no fault of their own. Yeah. Uh, but they may be going through a hard time. It's not that bad. Uh, they can look at Paul here and some of the things we'll talk about in the next episode and see, oh, 
That's how I respond. That's a very otherworldly response. It's not the way people on earth respond. That's the way Jesus Christ responds. Yeah, and you know, I'm reminded of when Ben Kingsley was playing Gandhi in the movie Gandhi. Is that a relative of yours, your uh, brother? Actually, yeah. My brother is Ben Kingsley. Not the same one. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've heard a story about uh, when he was... Port- I think you might have told it, as a matter of fact. Maybe I don't think so. Someone else. Uh, when he was playing Gandhi, you know, he got so into character and everything that when he was in India... The people like thought he was the second coming of Gandhi, and they almost worshipped him and everything. And he was like, "No, I'm not Gandhi. I'm just an actor." Uh, and there's some quote uh, I don't know whether it's in a bulletin article I wrote a while back because I heard the story in the minute bulletin article. Uh, the guy was basically like, "You know, you are you are showing Gandhi again. You know, by the way that you are portraying him." Mm-hmm. You are you've you know basically it's the highest compliment he could have received for playing Gandhi in the movie. The guy was basically saying, "You're Gandhi." Yeah, you know you you might as well just go ahead and be him. And that's kind of what I think of when we when when I think about the way I'm supposed to imitate Christ. You know, almost as an actor. You know, if you're watching a movie, a method actor. Yeah, if you're watching that movie or any movie. And there's a character, you're, you know, let's let's say it's a figure in history. If you're watching a movie about Martin Luther King Jr., then whatever that actor does in the movie is going to be what you think about Martin Luther King Jr., how he must have acted, the things he must have done. Uh, This is why, you know, uh, writers, when they make movies and if they misrepresent their characters, the writers get, the authors get very upset because their character has been misrepresented. Mm-hmm. You know, this actor took him a different direction. That's not who the character is. Mm-hmm. That's not what we wanted. Well, we have the same responsibility as showing Christ to other people. Because people are going to look at us for wearing that name. Yeah. And what we do, they're going to assume that that must be Christ. Because we're trying to act as Christ acted. No, yeah. we're not actors. That's a very good analogy. Yeah. yeah. I, like, I like that. Because I think about, you know, like Daniel Day-Lewis playing Lincoln, and I heard stories about how he didn't come out of character whenever he played Lincoln. Whenever the director said cut, that guy was still Lincoln. and looked, yeah. Somehow he looked like Lincoln, and you know, uh, you know, and, and your example of Ben Kingsley's Gandhi, and, and there's so many others, you know, these biopics that come out all the time, where these actors transform themselves uh, maybe they're playing somebody who's still alive. They'll go and spend a lot of time with that person and try to walk like them and talk like them and act like them. Well, that's a game. That's for entertainment. And they do that temporarily and come out of it. But as Christians, that that's our life. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned Galatians 2.20 a while ago, to the point where it's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. So we are working towards becoming Him in this uh, yeah. in this imitation, uh, let's talk about prayer a little bit and anxiety because mm-hmm. this Philippians four six and seven really gives people fits. Uh, a lot of people are dealing with depression, anxiety, worry of all kinds, mm-hmm. and Philippians four six says, "Do not be anxious about anything." So let's start with a disclaimer here. 
This isn't about mental illness or you know chemical imbalances. It's not a condemnation of bipolar disorder or uh, you know clinical depression or, or you know severe anxiety and things like that. Nor is it a condemnation of having the proper kind of concern that you should have in certain seasons of your life. Mm-hmm. If your wife dies, you're not supposed to just act like nothing bad happened. Yeah. That's not realistic. Grief is natural and important. If your child goes off to college and is away from home for the first time, and you're not sure what that, you know, you you trained him or her the best of your ability, uh, you know, one Saturday night when you can't get a hold of him and you're wondering what he's doing, concern is natural. Yeah. You know, you should be concerned. And you should call and check on him. But the kind of anxiety Paul is talking about here is thinking that you can control everything and and trying to control things that you can't control. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one way I, I look at it. And that's when prayer comes in because he's trying to build in his readers a dependence upon God. You know, rather than trying to be full of pride and control everything and think that, you know, you got some kind of hold on life and can control the events and circumstances of life, turn it over to God through prayer. And he mentioned several kinds of prayer there. Uh, prayer is, the first word is prayer. It's just general petitions to God. And then uh, supplication is kind of like pleading with God. Yeah. So asking God. Thanksgiving, of course, is praise and gratitude to God. And... Uh, it mentions requests, which is maybe a lesser form of supplication. But I see four different kinds of prayers mentioned there. And when we do that, God's peace, which, again, it goes back to what we said right before the break, surpasses all understanding. You know, try this. Don't try to understand the process. Just do it. It will guard your heart and your your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, um you know, it ties in with what Jesus taught on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, what Peter says in First Peter chapter five, verses uh, six and seven, where he says, "Casting your anxieties or your cares on Him, because He cares for you." So, um, prayer is a very important part of the Christian's life, and uh, we should we should use it more than we do. I think all of us confess that we don't pray like we should. We yeah. just you know, think we're too busy, and we don't do it as much as we should. Yeah, I think, you know, we had Aubrey Johnson come to that gospel meeting two years ago, mm-hmm. and I still remember he said the greatest mystery in all the world is that people don't, or is why people don't pray more. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and he said that, and that yeah. stuck Try with me. Trying to give a reason for not praying. Yeah. You know, he said, "I don't that. have time. You don't have to say a long prayer." Yeah, you know, there's, you know, I, I agree with what, what excuse, he said. What? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot about that because prayer, you know, in the we're talking here about the peace of God that surpasses all understandings will guard your hearts and minds. It will guard you. You know, it's something that it's you know it's simple to say. It's different to actually feel it. You know, and there are times when, you know, certainly we do feel it and we don't, you know, but 
uh, you know, times like if you lose somebody or maybe, uh, you know, those people that have problems with anxiety, uh, you know, it's uh, all the more common now, you know, that people are having, uh, you hear about folks having anxiety attacks or if you have issues with anxiety to where they, they reach that level or whatever it is, you know, um, there are there are things things like that that happen. You know, if you lose somebody, or maybe if you have an attack of some sort or something, and uh, or, or whatever it is, you've had some major trauma. What gets you past that is this. Yeah. You know, I think in the moment, you know, uh, of losing somebody or whatever it is that you certainly yeah, he's not condemning know, the feel, feelings. But he's saying, don't, don't accept it. Yeah, don't. Don't allow sit there and to... say, "Well, I'll always be this way." Mm-hmm. Don't give up on life. You know, don't, don't do that. Turn to prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, believe in a solution. Yeah. Even though you feel terrible, so maybe that's another way to distinguish it. You know, I was talking about, you know, we're not talking about chemical imbalances, and we're not talking about, you know, natural concern when you should be concerned. But maybe it's just simply he's saying, you know, don't settle for anxiety. Yeah, you know, don't settle for it. it you know, you because we have something feel so it, much better. Don't settle for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can, and something that'll give me anxiety is what we just talked about is the resurrection. I mean, that'll give me anxiety all day long when I start thinking about the, you know, what's going to happen at death and how are things going to be. You know, what's it going to and this is great that we're talking because this is something I need to hear. But it's making me feel better, you know, talking about it. Uh, you know, you were saying we don't have to understand the process of those things. You know, yeah. just know it's going to happen. You know, if I, I could worry my, I am confident I could literally worry myself to death. I mean, I really think I could mm-hmm. if I were to sit down and because the way my mind is wired, when there's something like that, I got to know what it is. Or, you know, i got to know how it you works. You want to try to figure it out, break it down. Yeah, but you and, can't. You just can't do that with mm-hmm. the resurrection. You can't do that with... No. So there are more things in life you can't do it with than you mm-hmm. can do it with. And uh, the thing that will... The thing that keeps me personally from going nuts with those things is what we just read mm-hmm. about praying and knowing... You know, trusting in God, because when you come down to it, prayer and releasing the anxiety that you have all comes down to how much do you trust God? Do you trust God enough to let him be in control? Do you trust God enough that, you know, even though you don't understand it, it's going to be fine and you're going to be okay in the end? Uh, You know, and it's that way with anything. Right. I said this from one time. There's very, it's very rare that I say something in the pulpit and I see a I can see a negative, an immediate negative reaction on somebody's face. Yeah. But one time I said, worry is pride. And the minute I said that, one of our ladies, she didn't realize she made this face, you know. But I was looking right at her, and she made this face like, uh, no, it's not, you know. Yeah. But now she may have been dealing with something and misunderstood what I meant by that. She might have been checking her fantasy football team's uh, No, <laughs> not this way. But I was thinking about, you know, First Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We always say just the second part, like I did a while ago, and don't quote verses 5 and 6, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, and that's how you're casting your anxieties on him. Mm -hmm. Humble yourselves, quit trying to figure everything out, quit trying to get control of everything, and, uh, you know, God cares for you. God cares for you. He has got this. He's got this. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're not going to figure it out. And if we've got it figured out, then it's no longer above us and beyond us in a matter of hope and faith. It's just this old natural world that we can understand in our old natural finite bodies. Yeah. So, to be continued, we got more to talk about in Philippians. Yeah. Maybe one or two more episodes. I think we have two more. We might only have one more, but I we think we could probably we do it in one, but yeah. depends on what we feel like. It's yeah. our podcast. We can do whatever we want. That is true. Uh, but you keep us going, so keep those up. We've had a lot of great comments uh, if you will go on to iTunes and leave us a review, that's not just for us to you know hear great things. So leave us a negative review if you don't like it. But those reviews help our podcast come up in the search and uh, help people find us better. And you can help us out by doing that. Just leave a little review. If you give us five stars, that would be fantastic. If you want to give us some feedback through email, Andrew's email address is akingsley at arclc.com. You can reach me at dkaiser at arcoc.com follow us on twitter the 66 podcast or look us up on the internet the 66.net 66 is a number and uh, like I said next week we're going to get towards the end of this book maybe finish it up thanks for joining us we'll see you next time